Okay, this was sent to me by Ed Bellow. A husband and wife are shopping in their local supermarket. The husband picks up a case of beer and puts it in their cart. What do you think you're doing? asks the wife. They're on sale. Only $20 for 24 cans, he replies. Put them back. We can't afford them, demands the wife. So they carry on shopping. A few aisles farther on, the woman picks up a $40 jar of face cream and puts it in the basket. What do you think you're doing? asks the husband. It makes, it's my face cream. It makes me look beautiful, replies the wife. Her husband retorts, so does 24 cans of beer and it's half the price. Uh, my wife didn't want me to use that one, but I thought it was pretty good. The Church of Jesus Christ in the States is going through some very heavy seas. We've had, um, we still have the uh, old tried and false doctrines like Mormonism, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints, of course, which is Mormonism, uh, Christian science, which a person about 50 years ago reminded me that it's like grape nuts. It's neither grape nor nuts, um, Christian science. Uh, we have all kinds of isms that have been in existence for a long time. Um, and, and, and of course, we have Christian science, as I said, and others as well. But we also have new ones, like, um, like pluralism. Pluralism teaches that no religion is really better than another one. Well, we should accept all religions. I frankly feel that may become a source of difficulties for the church in the future. Because when you say one way, Jesus Christ is the only way, they call that exclusivism. And you are looked upon as an outsider, and you're not being kosher. Pardon me, Vladimir, I shouldn't have said that. You're not being kosher. Or else there's the LGBTQ community. Who would have thought 20 years ago that we would be where we are now? It's not that the LGBTQ community wants tolerance. They want to force their viewpoints on us. And that could become a great problem for the church in the future. It could become a source of persecution. So it, it, there are all kinds of things confronting the church of Jesus Christ in the States. <laughs> but what we face is peanuts compared to what the church of Jesus Christ is facing in the world. Thousands of people are giving their lives just because they're Christians. Not just because of Islam, but because of other religions, like Hinduism. I don't know if you realize it, but in India, the prime minister has became elected on a Hindu platform that he's going to permit, uh, promote, I should say, Hinduism. And already there have been martyrs because of Hinduism. There are other false religions throughout the world that have persecuted the church, even animism. So the church of Jesus Christ is facing great persecution.
But that's nothing new. Would you take your Bibles very quickly before we look into Colossians and turn to Romans. Romans chapter 8, a very well-known passage. Romans chapter 8. But I want you to notice the context. Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now that verse, verse 36, is a quotation from Psalm 44. Why does Paul quote that? Good night, it was written a thousand years before Paul wrote Romans. Why did he include that? Paul included that to say the lot of God's children, those who follow Christ, has always been difficulties, persecution, peril. That was true a thousand years before Christ. That's true in Paul's day. It is true in our day. It's nothing new. So also, in Colossians, Paul is writing against false doctrine. It's not that they were being persecuted. You do have that in 1 Peter, where Peter says that we are suffering because of righteousness' sake or because of Christ in the hope of glory. That's true, but not in Colossians. In Colossians, he's basically facing false doctrine. And you notice what he does. He starts out with doctrine. He does not start out with rebuttal. He does not start out with a polemic against the false doctrine. He starts out with correct doctrine, who Jesus Christ is. Now that's very, very important. It's gonna be crucial in our application. But what I was saying is there's an emphasis on Christ. Who is he? He created all things. He's the creator. And because he's the creator, he's over all things. In fact, in the church, he's the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have preeminence on all things. He goes on to say, in fact, that the work of Christ is reconciliation. And ultimately, all things are going to be reconciled to God. Things in heaven, things on earth, Everything is going to be reconciled to God, whether willingly or unwillingly. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, Wherefore God has also highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. That's reconciliation. In Ephesians 1.10, which is the sister epistle, he says all things are going to be headed up one by one by one in Christ. All things are going to be reconciled to him. Then he moved on to the reconciliation of the Colossians. They were reconciled. So he looks at the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is continued on in the ministry of Paul. And we saw last Sunday that to Paul was given a marvelous mystery. We noted that the word mystery means formerly hidden truths now revealed. It doesn't mean it's difficult. It doesn't mean it's a secret. Once it's been revealed, it's for everybody. It's not just for a select few. But it's previously unrevealed truth now revealed. And there are several mysteries in the New Testament. One, of course, is 1, Timothy, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, 
where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I'm showing you a mystery, something you haven't heard before. We shall not all sleep, we're not all going to die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. What's it talking about? The rapture. That is not seen in the Old Testament. Resurrection, yes, but not the rapture. That doctrine of the rapture is elucidated a bit more in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's a second area of uh, mysteries found in Matthew chapter 13, where the Lord Jesus tells his disciples that you have mysteries, I'm giving to you mysteries of the kingdom. What mysteries? A whole new age between Christ's first coming and second coming. You don't find that in the Old Testament. There's a period of time between the first coming and the second coming. And in that time, good night, good and evil are going to coexist. In fact, the judgment that John the Baptist said is imminent, is ready to come at any time, is now postponed. It takes place after Christ returns. So there's a, there's a good and evil together that, that the judgment is postponed. There are all kinds of new truths in Matthew chapter 13 about this age. But the mystery of Colossians is different. The mystery of Colossians is equality of Jew and Gentile. It is explained much more fully in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. Some people were shocked when I said last Sunday that there is Gentile salvation in the Old Testament, but the Jewish people are going to be the leading nation. That's going to be true in the millennium. The Jewish people are going to be the leading nation. Now, I had more than one person say, what was that verse you quoted? And I was quoting Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23. Ten men of those who are Gentiles will grab the skirt of him who is a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we've heard that God is with you. Now, that's the extreme, but it's pointing out that Gentiles are going to be beneath Jews. Well, the new mystery is, in Christ, there's equality of Jew and Gentile. We are co-heirs, Jews and Gentiles, of the grace of life. We are co-heirs of the promises. Now that one is loaded with theology. I'd like to discuss that much more. But we're co-heirs with the Jews of the promises given to them. In fact, Paul puts it in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's all he says. But that's filled with theology. Christ Jesus, Christ the Messiah, the Messiah in Gentiles, the hope of glory, so that there's equality of Jew and Gentile. That's the ministry that he's talking about. Now, if you will, I need to get up my outline here. Where did that go? Now, if you will, you look at the fact that we're still talking about Paul's ministry, particularly his concern for the Colossians. So let's begin, if we may, with chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are in Laodicea. Now notice the four. It's tragic that there's a chapter division here because it's explaining the previous two verses. Look at verse 28. And we proclaim him, Jesus as Messiah, admonishing every man and teaching every man, or every person I should say, with all wisdom, that we may present every person complete in Christ. 
and for this purpose I labor. That word means to the point of exhaustion. Striving, agonizomai, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Remember we said that's the word energia, or energy, which looks at supernatural working. I labor, striving with supernatural power for you. For, now he's explaining that striving. For I want you to know how great a struggle. Now, ladies and gentlemen, look back at verse 29. Striving, in chapter 2, verse 1, struggle. Those are the same stem. I wish they carry out consistency here. So they would say, and for this purpose I labor, striving according, then chapter 2, verse 1, for I want you to know how great a strife I have. It's the same stem. And as we said, it's the word that looks at athletic competition. It could even be used of wrestling. It looks at hand-to-hand combat. I want you to know how great a struggle I have. For you at Colossae. Now hear me, Paul was never at Colossae. And Paul was never at, at Laodicea. How could he struggle for them? What's his struggle? He didn't minister there, no combat. What's this about? I think it's explained in chapter 4, Colossians, verse 12. So slip over one page and look at Colossians 4, 12. Epiphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring, same word, striving, always striving earnestly for you in his prayers. So I take it that in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is talking about striving in prayer. That's how he could minister to the people who are at Laodicea and at Colossae. I strive for you. What a lesson. Prayer is not some drowsy, sleepy exercise. It's striving. Have you ever thought about the struggle of prayer? (laughs) You know what you struggle with? Your time. You say, I'm too busy. I don't have time to pray. Well, as one person said, if you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. It's not being busy. It's a matter of priorities. To what do you give priorities? And you've got to strive to set aside time for prayer. And besides that, prayer means... You've got to concentrate. Uh, My mind, as I've said before, is like a wild horse. It just runs off in all directions. In fact, even when I pray out loud, I I find that praying out loud is a huge help. If you pray silently, your mind goes all over the place. But if you pray orally, your mind is much more disciplined. So I'd suggest that if you can, find a private place where nobody's going to hear you, and they just pray out loud. That may be one reason why the Lord Jesus says, when you've shut the door, pray in secret. So it may be that we should pray orally, but nevertheless, just, just keeping concentrated. That's striving. And then besides that, prayer is a struggle. You're striving with Satan. When you see the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, it concludes with praying. The old hymn that says, each piece put on with prayer, caught it. It's talking about praying in this struggle against principalities and powers, spiritual forces. It's a struggle. 
So Paul says, I'm struggling in prayer for you who are at Colossae and at Laodicea. What do you mean Laodicea? Well, if you were with us for our first study, we noticed that there were three cities in the Lycus Valley, where the Lycus River runs. And Colossae was one of them. About 10 miles to the west is Laodicea, a large, prosperous city, much more important than Colossae. In fact, you wonder, why did Paul send the letter to Colossae when Laodicea is so much more important? Well, evidently, the heresy at Colossae was more rampant than it was at, at Laodicea. But Laodicea is mentioned because it is a prominent city. If you remember the seven churches of uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the first church is Ephesus, the last one is Laodicea. And you remember what they say? I'm rich, I'm rich, and have need of nothing. It was a prosperous city. And yet Paul is concerned about that church as well as Colossae, but he sends the letter to the Colossians, and that's one that's been preserved for us. So he says, as many for all who have not personally seen my face. Now, people argue, did Paul ever appear in Colossae or Laodicea? Well, possibly he did. There's some discussion about whether he even traveled through those cities. It's possible that he did. But he didn't stop and minister so that nobody there knew him. None of them knew his face. He's ministering to people they'd never seen before. Well, that's his statement of concern. That leads to number two, the purpose of his concern and his prayers. Here's what I'm praying, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting Resulting, uh, excuse me, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself. The point he's making here is I'm praying that their hearts may be encouraged. Now this is the Greek verb paraklo, or based on the Greek verb paraklo. Um, paraklo is a, has wide meanings, wide meanings. It's still used very commonly in Greek today, paraklo. Um, it may be encouraged. It may be to uh, spread uh, consolation to somebody, to give consolation. It could be that. More probably, I think in the context, it should be using the word strengthened. That you may be strengthened. That's a very real possibility. Remember John 14? The Lord Jesus, in the night before he's crucified, says, I'm gonna leave you. But I'm not gonna leave you like orphans. I'm going to leave you another, and the King James says, comforter. Same stem. Today it's translated, I'll leave you another helper. It's the English word come fort. Come alongside of, with, fort, strength. So the original word has the idea of somebody coming alongside to strengthen you. And I take that's the meaning of the word here. That you may be strengthened. And we're going to see that that fits the context. He's talking about not moving, about being stable. I think he's talking about being strengthened. Now here's how you're strengthened. That you may be strengthened, having been knit together in love. Mm. Again, it seems like there's one problem after another. What do you mean by knit together in love? Well, it's possible that he's talking here about Christian fellowship. 
And there is strength in that. That's one reason why Hebrews 9.25 says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together with the brethren, as a matter of some is. You need to be together in love and strengthened with that by that love factor. Uh, I may be too judgmental here, but every once in a while I run across a family that says, we haven't found a church that's good enough. In fact, I found one family that said they couldn't find a church good enough for themselves in Dallas. Great, honk, stone the crows and starve the lizards. You can find every kind of evangelical church you want in Dallas. But it's been my observation that those families are just a little off kilter. They're just a little off center. There's something strange about them because when you meet together, you have some of the corners rubbed off. And you find other believers that will encourage you and challenge you. There is strength in being knitted together in love. That's a very real possibility. But it could have another meaning. It could be being instructed. Being instructed in love. There is so much doctrine in this passage that that's what I take it to be. That you may be, inst- that you may be strengthened. How? Instructed in love. What causes you to be strong? Proper teaching. But it must be taught in love. That's why he says your hearts may be strengthened. Having been taught in love. If you're taught cold-heartedly, just doctrine, 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 with no real heart, you're not going to be strengthened. I pray constantly that you'll sense the love of God in the teaching in this class, that you be strengthened in love because the teaching is meant to be taught lovingly. It can be cold-hearted and hard and casual, divisive. No, it's taught in love. So I think he's saying, here's what I'm praying, that you may be strengthened because you have been taught in love. But he moves on. There's something more to it than that. That your hearts may be strengthened, having been taught, knit together in love, taught in love, and attained to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Notice understanding. That's why I think he's talking about teaching. That you may know the wealth, the riches of what? Coming to full assurance. The full assurance of understanding. T-A-I, which means, I can't hear you, think about it. The full assurance of understanding. When you begin to put the scriptures together, and when you begin to see how Christ fits into this, how all these dispensations we've been talking about come together in Christ, mm, that gives you a quiet confidence. And what can you pay for that? He's praying that you may just come to the wealth, the full assurance of understanding. And that's what I want us to do to be. We have assurance of the truth, not that we're proud or dogmatic, but we may come to the full assurance, the quiet confidence of understanding, so that it results in a true knowledge of Christ's mystery. It's the word full knowledge, 
a full knowledge of God's mystery, who's Christ. Wow, that's loaded. He is burdened in prayer that these people may be strengthened by being taught in love so that with understanding they come to this full assurance of who Christ is, the full revelation of God, the mystery, the full revelation of God in Christ. That's his purpose. And ladies and gentlemen, that's my goal. That this church, that this, not church, this class, this fellowship may be strengthened. Having been taught in love, that we may quietly come to this full assurance and understand the riches that we have in Christ, understanding Him. Page two in your notes. Page two. Defensive. Now we come to the second main part of the book. The first is doctrinal, the person and work of Christ. Now we come to the defense, uh, the polemic, the fighting against the error. And he's fighting against human philosophy in verses 4 to 34. So he's talking about the danger of deception. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. I say this, in other words, he wants them to have this confidence, full assurance. I say this in order that no one may deceive or delude you with persuasive arguments. That word deceive or delude is unusual. It's only found in two places in the New Testament. It's found here, and the other place is James 1.22. Well, we have the verse that's for all Bible-teaching churches. It's a, it's a verse for the Stonebriar Community Church, where he says, Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, wait a minute. What does that mean? Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Here's the deception. When people are taught the word of God, they come to understand it, and they think that because they understand it, they're doing it. That's a false leap. I think, oh, I understand that. Let's move on to the next point. No, you've got to apply it. Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And here he's talking about a false philosophy that would deceive them through persuasive arguments. Now, there's nothing wrong with persuasive arguments. You can use persuasive arguments to convince a person of the truth. But you may also use persuasive arguments to encourage somebody to believe falsely. We're seeing that in our culture today. Have you noticed the First Amendment to our Constitution? You've heard it over and over again, but let me read it once again. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or of prohibiting the free exercise thereof, freedom of religion, or abridging the freedom of speech, freedom of speech, or of the press, freedom of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, freedom of assembly, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, petition of uh, 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 freedom to petition the government. The one we're after is the first part. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now that amendment has historical background. 
For instance, the pilgrims came to the United States just because of this. The Church of England was a state church. It was paid for by the government, and you were supposed to submit yourselves to the state church, the Church of England. They fled to Holland, and from Holland they came to the United States, and they established the Plymouth Colony. Bradford, the second governor of the Plymouth Colony, set forth very strongly the concept of separation of church and state. To this day, if you talk to Baptists who know what they're talking about, and you ask them for distinctives of the Baptist church, they will point out separation of church and state. That was not true of some of the early colonies. But finally, when it was ironed out, this was put in as amendment number one. Notice what it's saying. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. In other words, that means the government is not to establish any religion. It's to be separate from establishing that. The government is not to fuss in the government or for prohibiting the free exercise of that government, of that, of that religion. So what's happened? By persuasive argument, we've come to put up the idea of a wall. A wall between church, or between church and state, which means the church, the, the state, cannot get into church's business, which is true. That's why it was written. But they've also turned it around to say, ah, the church can't have anything to do with the government. It never said that at the beginning. The church had a great deal to do with the government. That's why they had prayer in the Congress. That's why they had, had the idea of God. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. They had the idea of God. It did not say the church could have nothing to do with God. So now we have this wall of separation so that anything that has to do with the government can't have anything to do with Christianity. You can't have prayer in schools. You can't have a cross in some remote desert. You can't have any religion at all in the government. It does not say that. But that's what we've come to, to believe. The separation of church and state is a wall. Now it's come to the place where the government is interfering with the church. And they're making laws that deal with the church. They're just, they're just, just persuasive argument. And they've used that to, to persuade people concerning error. And here he's talking about a philosophy. What that philosophy is, we'll see in a few Sundays. So let's say this. Let no one deceive you, that no one may deceive you with persuasive arguments. Now verse 5. Verse 5 is the next point in your outline, which is uh, the peril that comes from Paul not being with them. So he says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 5, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit. <laughs> what does that mean? I hear that all the time. Uh, I couldn't get up last Sunday. I was just too tired, so I stayed in bed. I was absent in body, but I was present with you in spirit. <laughs> what do they mean? They, were, they mean I was thinking about you. I thought about you. Is that all that Paul means? 
I'm absent in body, but I'm thinking about you. No, it means much more than that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about disciplining a person who professed to be a Christian, living in deep sin. He says, I'm with you in spirit. It doesn't, doesn't mean I'm just thinking about you. I'm gathered together, together with you in spirit to pass judgment on this person. There are many interpretations of what this means. Probably, it means that we are in Christ together. You're at Colossae, I'm here at Rome, we're in Christ. And since we're both in Christ, I'm with you in spirit. Probably, that's what it means. But then he goes on to say this, I'm rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. The word good discipline basically means order, your order. Many times this is used of, a, of an army maintaining order in the face of uh, opposition. And it can mean that. But more probably it just means order. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 14.40, Paul says that all things be done decently and in order. He's talking about the exercise of spiritual gifts, particularly prophecies and tongues. And he says, don't, don't, don't have disorder. Let all things be done decently and in an orderly fashion. Now hear me. False doctrine invariably causes divisions. Invariably. And what he's saying is, you've maintained order in spite of false doctrine. So I rejoice in seeing the order that you've maintained. And besides that, he says, the stability of your faith. Good translation. That you've been grounded in your faith. That your faith in Christ. They've not moved from Christ. They've been strong in, face, in, in spite of his absence. Now that leads very next to, to the doctrine of Christ. Verse 6. As therefore you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now what does that mean? You may want to mark down this basic principle. The method of justification always determines the method of sanctification. May I say that again? The method of justification determines the method of sanctification. And it's been taken that that's what this verse is saying. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. You are justified by grace through faith. Now that's true. And that doctrine is taught very, very clearly in Galatians chapter 3. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Galatians chapter 3, how did you receive the Spirit? How are you justified? You're justified by grace through faith, so continue in that. That is possible for what this is saying. But probably, he's talking about doctrine. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Notice Christ Jesus the Lord. He's talking about as you received who Christ is. As you welcomed Christ. So continue with that doctrine. I think that's what he's saying. It's Christ, Christ, Christ. As you receive Christ Jesus as the Lord. Think of those three words. Christ, Messiah, 
Jesus, the human, the Lord, Jesus is Jehovah. As you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. Accept him as that as the truth. Very quickly. As you receive, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. You, you've been rooted in him. That's something that's perfect tense. It's past tense with completed action. You've been rooted. I can tell you again, a little groggy, so let me use an illustration. Um, one time a church gave Max and me a little gift, cash gift. So we had just bought a house and decided to buy two trees to put in our front lawn, live oaks. So we went to the nursery and purchased these two trees, I suppose about inch and a half in trunk size. And they delivered the trees, dug out a couple of holes, put the trees in, covered them over. Then around each of the trees, they put a collar. And then around the trees, they placed four stakes. And they ran wires from the collars down to the stakes. Well, I left those in there for a couple of months. Well, have you ever mowed around stakes? It's a mess. You get tired of it. So I finally said, that's it. I've had it. And I cut off the cables, cut off the collars, pull up the stakes. Well, sure enough, within two weeks, we had a blinding nighttime storm with a lot of wind and rain. Out of concern, I looked out the window at night and in the lightning, I could see the trees bending over very steeply. I finally realized I couldn't do anything about it, so I went back to sleep. In the morning I woke up, and it was bright and clear, and there those trees were standing strong, upright. Why, they'd been rooted. They got their roots established in that soil. Now that's what he's talking about. You've been rooted. You've been taught correctly. What a compliment for Epiphras, the founder of the church, at Colossae, and probably also at Laodicean and Thyatira. But you've been rooted in him. Then he goes on to say, established, confirmed in your faith. You know what it literally says? Confirmed in the faith. He's talking about doctrine. You've been solid in doctrine, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. The emphasis is on instruction being confirmed, but at the same time, there's gratitude. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of thanksgiving. Sometimes just ask yourself, why should I be thankful? <laughs> uh, we think of this at Thanksgiving time. There we sit in front of a table, just freighted down with food. And somebody would say, we should be more thankful. Of course, we're thankful for provision. But we should be thankful because God commanded it. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks. We should be thankful because it's an evidence of being filled with the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 5. Because one of the evidences of being filled with the Spirit is being thankful. And here is being thankful just because of who Jesus is. I really appreciate the times that we have in our class. When we give thanks, I'm deeply bothered when Taylor would say, anybody in this section 
and nobody responds. Anybody in this section, nobody responds. Anybody in this section, nobody responds. That's wrong. All of us have reasons for giving thanks. So we do this with gratitude, with thanksgiving. Now, very quickly, we come to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, through philosophy and empty deception. Philosophy. Hmm. I'm going to discuss this very quickly, and then I'll let you go. See to it that no one takes you captive. Think about that. We hear about uh, little girls taken captive by ISIS. And they're slaves. And that's what he's saying here. False doctrine makes you slaves of false teaching. Let nobody make you a slave through philosophy. Should we study philosophy? Well, we'll discuss that next Sunday. Should we discuss, should we study philosophy? I've heard people say, no, you shouldn't study philosophy. It'll deceive you. It's called empty deception. That's not what it's saying. Well, let's bring this to a conclusion. So what? Ladies and gentlemen, I was so impressed as I was studying this passage that the antidote to false doctrine, the antidote for difficult times is Jesus Christ. That's all he talks about. Jesus Christ. That means that everything in our lives it's a circulator on Christ. I one time thought that if you're a salesman, you should be the top salesman in the class. If you're in a school, you should be the top student, and so on, which is ridiculous. An elder reminded me that's not fair. A Christian is competing against a person who has no other thing in his life but to be successful in his business. No, you can't do that. But what you need to do, we all need to do, is make Christ the center of our lives. I don't care what your work is, it's Christ. I don't care if you're retired, the issue is Christ. Is Christ the center of our lives? Is he the focal point? Is he the core of ministry? Is he the core of Marathon Adult Fellowship? Is he the core of your family? Is Christ the hardcore center? Is Christ, Christ, Christ? And there's a beginning. The beginning, of course, is to turn to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, save me. I welcome you to my life. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. Bless now and the rest of this day Bring glory to yourself as we celebrate the one church of Jesus Christ. We trust ourselves to you for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.